Heat storms, floods, fires. The deadly, the costly, and Asia on the forefront of climate risks still remains massively underinsured. This trend is putting the wallets and livelihoods of billions in jeopardy. Is there a way out of this vicious cycle? This is the Eco Business Podcast. I'm Liang Li. Last month, global insurer Munich Re released data for natural disaster losses in 2023. It showed that the Asia Pacific region was once again poorly indemnified. Typhoons and floods, along with geophysical events like earthquakes, caused 50 billion US dollars in damage, and just 14% of this amount was insured in Asia. Only Africa fed was at under 7%, while North America topped 67% of insurance coverage. Now these trends aren't new, and that itself is a big problem. Without sufficient insurance coverage, the situation in developing regions will only get worse as extreme weather caused by global warming intensifies and brings more economic losses. So, what are the difficult factors at play here in Asia that are holding back greater protection of property, land, and businesses? Are there ways to help people better shield themselves from increasing climate risks? Joining us on the Eco Business Podcast are two experts in the field of risk and insurance. We have Dr. Jack Xia, the chief actuary of Singapore-based insurance technology firm Eglu, which offers a weather index insurance for farmers in Vietnam to cover crop losses from too much or too little rain. We also have Dr. Christopher Au, head of WTW's recently established Asia Pacific Climate Risk Center, which counsels businesses on building climate resilience. Let's start with you, Jack, about the weather index insurance. So, from what I understand, it pays farmers out when the rain clouds basically aren't behaving as they should. So, tell us a little more about that. And also, I think it's been rolled out for about two years, if I'm not wrong. So, what's Igloo's experience rolling it out in Vietnam? And I heard it's going to be Indonesia next, right? Yeah, sure. So, yeah, thank you, Leon. Thank you, Christopher. So, give you a bit more background. We launched this product two years ago in November 2022. So we started with a rice product in Mekong Delta. Now we expand to coffee in Central Highland, and also various different crops in the whole South Vietnam. And before going to the product, I want to just share a bit more about the wedding dress insurance and agricultural insurance in general from our experience. Because typically you see three different models of agricultural insurance. I would say the first model is mostly like government-sponsored projects, and premiums are relatively high, and also payouts are high. But in order to sell, the premiums need to be heavily subsidized by the government. Also, we see some kind of like a second model where some kind of sponsors will sponsor projects, and but it's really a bit hard to sustain in the future once the sponsorship and funding runs out. But Eglu runs it slightly differently because、uh, we see that insurance penetration is very low in Southeast Asia, and the、uh, customers are able to、uh, afford a very high premium for that. So we developed this、uh, micro version of、uh, agricultural insurance. We made it、uh, in index based, so no manual intervention,、uh, no farm、uh, exercise or examination. And the purpose is really to educate the farmers about what is insurance, and you will get a payout if it's adverse、uh, weather effects. This is quite well 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 aligned with the vision of insurance for because、uh, our mission is really to make sure the insurance accessible and affordable to farmers. So we start with a micro product, with an insurance wedding index product to educate the farmers how it works. And as the market grows, economy grows, insurance penetration grows, we will start to introduce、uh, insurance products with higher coverage,、uh, more varieties, and also extend to other other markets. 
like Indonesia, Vietnam, and Philippines. I see. Cool. And how many farms have been onboarded? If you have these figures. Oh yeah. So uh, we started with our few provinces. So now we cover uh, 19 uh, provinces of Vietnam, out of uh, 63 provinces and cities. So almost like one third of Vietnam, the south part. And also for last month, we have probably 50,000 farmers. We work closely with our distribution partners. So we have uh, two distribution partners. We have the first partner, where is, uh, we sell through our the agriculture value chain. So this partner is called Farm Angel. So they get very deep into this uh, agricultural value chain. They help farmers to give them advice, teach them how to farm, sell them seeds and fertilizers, and also buy the product from them. Also, there is a second uh, distribution partner. We work with Vietnam's largest telco player called uh, Mobifone. And this Mobifone has a very interesting program called MobiAgree. So the farmers, I mean, the farmers are not rich, but they have handphones and they use data. So in this Mobifone, they have a special data plan. They have every day, they provide data, they provide agricultural advice, they provide a weather, weather forecast, and together, they also provide insurance. So through this model, we sell, we distribute insurance through Mobifone. So we can cover a lot of farmers in a relatively short period of time. All right. That's awesome to hear. And then I do want to get to the issue of, you know, under insurance in this region, but maybe I'll stick to Jack first. I just wanted to ask, I mean, we've seen the Munich refigures. Those are for Asia Pacific, but I'm sure Southeast Asia is no exception in terms of the under insurance. So I wanted to ask about what's your experience with low climate insurance rates in Southeast Asia? Basically, you know, what are the challenges to scaling products like the weather index insurance, either to more sectors or to more clients within the region than you have currently? I would say when we uh, released this report, it's probably a bit more focused on uh, more, more developed economies like uh, Korean, uh, Japan, and China, and mostly East Asia. So in terms of Southeast Asia, the insurance penetration is very, very low. And the, in, the wedding agriculture insurance penetration is close to zero in, in some markets. For example, two years ago, when we started to develop this in Vietnam, when we talked to farmers, they don't understand what is the insurance at all. I mean, they may have received some kind of insurance from the government, but they don't really understand its insurance. To them, it's more of like a financial support from the government. It's not really a product. And they are not really willing to pay for that. So that's a hard lesson we learned from the field that we can't really, as a, as a like, private company, as a startup, we can't really sell directly to farmers when they don't really understand what is insurance. So that's why we do this amount of micro version, index version, and in the embedded version and sell this product to our partners. And the main focus is really try to educate the market to let the farmers know what is the insurance, help understand the, understand the concept. And once some farmers get some claims with no insurance works, in the future, they will buy their like, standalone product and pay for a higher premium product. Gotcha. So it's very much still an awareness problem on your side that you see, Jack. Just coming to Christopher, based on what you hear from the Climate Risk Centre, what's the issue here in Southeast Asia? And also just wanted to add on, are there any sectors or any countries that are particularly underinsured? So what's the pattern around this region? Thanks, Liang. And you know, Jack's given some really, uh, some really useful insight in terms of you know, how individuals often in rural environments think, you know, but you take a, you take a farmer in Vietnam, they are effectively a business unit themselves. I think when we, when we have these same conversations with, with large corporates and I mean, you know, we work across the chain, 
we see the same conversations around awareness, around the value of insurance. Unfortunately, the way that things are headed, you know, we definitely are having more and more years of events of disruption. We're seeing more and more property damage. And then we're seeing some of that feed through to issues like worker productivity. What does what does the what does extreme heat do to how fast you can build a new factory, a new housing development? You know, what does that productivity look like? And so what's the impact on valuations and impact on how capital gets allocated? Uh, to, to to your question, Liang, on you know, sectors, countries, you know, I, I think we're talking about something that's pretty systemic, right? We have to look at both the hazard side as well as the the exposure side too, with growing intra-regional trade, you know, there's growing economic social interdependency. And so impacts of one event are not necessarily constrained to one country, to one sector. Recent your know, recent concern here in Singapore on transboundary haze shows how these events are becoming regional. And I don't think haze insurance was something that was you know necessarily widely thought about a few years ago. But we are absolutely in a position now where businesses should be planning for the impacts of haze. If you are in Singapore, Malaysia, it, it, it should no longer be a surprise, right, that there is haze. If I run a mall, what does that do to footfall? Right. These are interruption. These are events that 10, 15 years ago probably didn't happen. They are happening now with new levels of heat, as we saw in 2023. And those new levels of heat, by the way, were not just, you know, in the atmosphere, they're in the oceans too. Right. What is this doing to catch, to fishing? And I think there's a divide across developed and developing in, in, in Asia. You know, we... Some of the typhoons in in Hong Kong last year, Saola, Haiku. These, these are these are questioning what is the baseline? What is the one percent chance? You know, one percent chance of this event happening this year. Is is that now one percent? Is that two percent? Yeah, you, which is a doubling. <laughs> what does an extreme event look like? What does the baseline look like? And that's in obviously a very you know urbanized, highly developed part part of, part of of Asia. If we move to chronic, you know, but not just facing this from acute events and typhoons, tropical cyclones are causing damage. We're seeing, as Jack has discussed, some of the challenges in the Mekong Delta. What does sea level incursion look like? What does saltwater intrusion look like? Bangladesh is building gas plants. What does sea level rise look like over a 10, 15 year period? And if I'm a business and I'm dependent on the power coming from that gas plant, what does that do to my interruption and my risk profile? So I think we're seeing both from the hazard side as well as the exposure side and economic development side across chronic events and acute events. I think we're seeing you know just a general increase of risk and it's showing up in places that we hadn't previously considered. Gotcha, Christopher. Um, I, I like the example of the Hayes um, insurance. Initially, I was thinking more of it from an extension of a personal health insurance, but then you started mentioning, you know, what what's in it for for a shopping mall who has no customers, right? That's really interesting. And Christopher, I just wanted to ask a bit deeper into linking what you said with under insurance. Both J- um, Jack and you, Christopher, you mentioned that um, there is an awareness issue, but right now we're also at a stage where I suppose Southeast Asia has faced increased climate risks um, in the past few years. So people are definitely feeling it. But at the same time, um, under insurance remains an issue. 
do you have any inkling of what's kind of the sticking point here? Is it that they are calculating and they can't haven't reached the conclusion on what they need yet? Or is it more of the affordability side of things that's keeping them or, or the availability of suitable insurance programs that's keeping them from buying any insurance packages of sorts? Yeah, yeah, sure. As, as, as always, it, it, it's going to be a mix of, of some of those factors you outline. I would... I would take it back to first principles almost and say, you know, we've described how, you know, we're entering a world of more risk, right? So businesses, individuals, you know, investors, I think they really need to have clarity on, you know, what the risk level is today. Am I prepared for today? What does the risk look like in, you know, 10 years time or what is my planning horizon? How am I allocating capital? I think we see quite clearly insurance is just one form of risk management. You know, it's really actually one form of risk transfer itself, part of a wider risk management approach. You know, it, it rarely works alone. You know, it typically works with other services, you know, and I think Jack's experience on the ground will attest exactly to that, where, you know, you, you can't go in and sell insurance alone because that that is not where the value comes. So we are definitely seeing businesses start to look at the risk landscape on climate more broadly, look at risk assessment and work out what does financing look like. You know, and part of that process involves increased investment in risk management so that you bring down exposure. In a world of increasing risk, we have to invest and do more just to stay stationary before we even think about, you know, bringing risk down and then thinking about transfer. You know, I, I would say that there's a little bit of nuance in this protection gap debate. You know, some of the research WTW did, you know, I think for, I think 2023 was the fourth consecutive year globally where we had insured losses over $100 billion, you know, around the world. And the total, the total economic loss, you know, we, we think it's around $350 billion or so. You know, so I, I think that whilst there is that protection gap, you know, you don't necessarily insure against every dollar of loss that you may incur. That isn't necessarily the most optimal way to deploy your capital. So I do think some nuance around the protection gap is helpful. And I would say that maybe, you know, I think insurance has a little bit more of a fundamental role than is probably given credit for. You know, it's, I think it does help how capital gets allocated if we are able to price future flood risk today and if that could factor into residential commercial industrial valuations perhaps that will affect how exposure develops how economic value develops and then from there you know we were quite clearly could have you know a very a very informed conversation around risk management. It's really um, incorporating risk considerations, not just at the insurance stage, but you, you mentioned right at the start in the valuation stage. Jack, I think coming back to you and coming back to you know, like Southeast Asia with some of the issues we typically see of, you know, governments, businesses having tight purse strings. How does Igloo strike the balance when you're doing the weather index insurance between making the premiums affordable for farmers and also ensuring business continuity on Igloo's side. Okay, okay. So just to add on to Christopher's point, right? I mean, it, anyway, we are we are still trying. We're still trying, trying to cover this extreme weather events. So if you look at a particular place, a particular household, a particular farm, there's so much volatility in the claims, right? In the green year, nothing happens, and once in ten years, if something happens, you have to pay a lot, lot of it. So it doesn't make any sense for the insurance company just to cover one farm. 
because the product is not, not very stable, right? There's too much volatility in, in, the, in the cash flow. So what the, typically what the insurance company wants is the government to step in and build a, build a product and expand the product to the whole region of the whole country. And for such product to work nationwide, the government need to at least allocate $10 million to sponsor or support a full nationwide program. And this kind of budget in any country takes a few years to negotiate and discuss. And it may not, they may never get done, right? So in Igloo's uh, strategy is ready to start with something micro and start, with, start to distribute the products with our partners and make sure the product is rolled out to the market and the market understand how the product works and slowly increase the coverage, increase the conditions. And for example, we start with a very next product, a very low premium. And for example, we have two products, right? One product is a seasonal product and it's just like a two US dollar a month per hectare of land. And when the products we work with, we found the data provider in the data package. The data package itself is only 20 cents a day. And insurance premium is a very, very small fraction of that. So with such a low premium, we can penetrate markets and let the market understand insurance works. Let's suppose the product is really rolled out to the whole market. And then internationally, all the insurers and reinsurers doesn't really find the problem, calculate numbers, set the right premium and provide the right subsidy to promote the product. So such product has been working quite well in most other markets. I mean, say, I would say in, in Europe, Australia has been working very well. And the product is proven to be stable in China, India, Japan, and South Korea. So our challenge is really how to roll the product to make sure the, farm, some, the farmers get the claims and benefit from insurance. Then we can still start to increase the coverage, increase the terms, start from a wedding that's product, and also add benefits to cover more conditions. So that's really a startup strategy. And Igloo has a very unique value proposition. We know insurance, and we have also have very strong commercial and operation presence in all these markets. Sure, gotcha. Jack, I think one follow-up question for you. I, I was reading up more about how the insurance package works. So it, it, it basically is this concept called parametric insurance, right? Based on weather parameters, based on, based on rainfall levels. Um, I want to ask about whether you've done any projections to the future, because correct me if I'm wrong. So some of the factors that you have to deal with is what counts as extremely high or low rain. So what's the yeah. threshold? And on the other side, like I mentioned, the ability of Igloo to sustain these payouts. Um, when they happen. So I'm not sure if you've done any forecasts in terms of in the future, if there's, um, I mean, the, the expectation is that extreme weather may become more extreme in the future. Um, do you, have you done any forecasts on whether this model would be more challenging in the future with, let's say, a 1.52 or beyond two degrees of climate change scenario in Southeast Asia? I would say in terms of the rainfall and uh, index products, we look at the data. Of course, uh, of course, obviously global warming is a problem and global warming is uh, causing some uh, re reducing yield in many regions. But generally, when we look at the past uh, 20, 30 years of rainfall data, the impact is not that big. So, I mean, we've worked with insurer, worked with insurer, reinsurer, study the data. We believe our current pricing is sustainable at least for the next uh, five years. When, when it goes to the farms, the rainfalls are not changing that much in the last few years. Of course, but in some senses, there was obviously more typhoon in some areas, probably in Philippines, in America, the more typhoon, more hurricane. But in terms of rainfall, it's not really distributing that bad. 
and also because the, the government's also investing in all the system to make sure the farms get enough water from different sources of wells and so on, right? So we believe at least uh, in terms of index insurance, the products are quite sustainable, at least in the near future. Gotcha. But just one follow-up. Now you brought up this thing about rainfall, let's say in Vietnam, is still manageable. But what about, like you said, Philippines, where, you know, you get a lot of the bigger scale typhoons, hurricanes. Would a parametric insurance model work in terms of, you know, protecting property against these bigger hurricanes? So actually in, in Philippines, we do have such a product that protects the, the customers in terms of, let's say if a typhoon destroys their home, they will get a really high payout of a few thousand dollars. We do have this product available, but this product is not really parametric because if a house is destroyed, something will go there and try to investigate. So, but in terms of parametric insurance, we may find it challenging to pay out a large amounts because if the payout is large, then it makes sense for someone to go in there and do investigation and pay a few thousand dollars or even more to settle claims. So as of now, I think what we see in Southeast Asia, primary insurance is still more towards micro insurance, where the payouts are probably a few hundred dollars. So it's mostly from an efficiency point of view. Right, gotcha. I think almost same question for Christopher in terms of looking looking forward is how, how big is the possibility that there could be uninsurable climate risks with global warming rising to 1.52 beyond 2 degrees in Southeast Asia? I think it's... This is one of those medium term trends that probably keeps a few in the insurance industry up at night. To be honest, I, you know, I, you know, while some of the changes now are, you know, it's it's fascinating to hear, you know, how how, how Jack sees it and and the impact on you know th- their pricing and their ability to continue to innovate and and serve farmers that don't currently have access to insurance or financial services i think it's it's, it's actually quite encouraging our sense is that if we look at the remaining carbon budget and we look at the climate science we're quite clearly pointed in the direction of increased warming and significant damage and interruption on the horizon. I think the con- continual environmental change, the way that the science indicates it's moving, is going to question insurability. Uh, Southeast Asia already has very high natural catastrophe risk. You know, this is going to get worse across both, you know, acute and chronic events, be that flood, tropical cyclone, you know, we spoke about wildfires and haze, drought, we aren't just looking at change in the volatility of water availability, but it's going to be the relative impact compared to, you know, economic growth and competing claims for water. So I think we're headed to a place where the technical insurance price for some of these risks is going to be very, very high, quite possibly outside the, you know, the conventional realms of affordability and insurability. But that's where you know, we need continual innovation. We need continual thinking outside the box, you know, the way Igloo are trying. I think that is absolutely, you know, more of those programs and initiatives are going to be needed. If I, if I take a step back and look at the recent insurance market, property insurance, you know, standard damage interruption for fixed assets, buildings, we've seen an increase in price across the world you know, quite significant double digit percentage price increase over the past two years. And really us in the climate team, we sort of draw a link back to 
some big losses in America, in Europe, where insurers have a lot of exposure already. And what that means is that, you know, following bad losses, some insurers say, actually, I don't, I don't want to participate. I don't want to provide too much capital. After a flood, demand tends to go up. <laughs> and that's led to this, you know, price pressure that has come in. So, you know, we would draw a line back to just an increase in the intensity and frequency of these events globally is starting to affect how insurers allocate their capacity. We've seen some of this in the USA. There's the insurer of last resort, which is funded by the government in Florida, is called Citizens. It now has over a million policies in our rights. It is now the largest property insurer in the state. So this is you know, supporting people's livelihoods. But we are seeing the state step in. In, in Europe, there are public-private partnerships developed or in operation. The UK has one called Floodry. There are more of the state participation as prices increase. And I think this is a sign of how the risk financing dynamics may play out in Asia. If catastrophe risk, as it's known, you know, continues to accumulate unchecked and without some of the risk management investment we spoke about earlier. Right. And it's interesting because I was reading the UN um, adaptation gap report from late last year, and it did cover what the US insurers were doing, stopping coverage in catastrophe prone areas. But the conclusion was actually that in the short term, there will be an increase in vulnerability for people who are still there. But in the longer term, once people move away, it constitutes a drop in vulnerability. I guess this ties into what you mentioned about planning. Christopher, about government state level funding, we talked about working with the government for some of the insurance programs already. But what's your take on, you know, need the calls for more foreign aid and grants for developing regions for Southeast Asia? We hear a lot of those, but how much hope are you pinning on these new sources of finance to make a difference in terms of climate risk protection and affordable insurance? Yeah, of course. I I think hope is a is is definitely one word to 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 use in this context. You know, I you mentioned the adaptation report and the change in vulnerability, and you know, we would absolutely agree that that is a process and an outcome that that would probably make sense. Where this where we have government support that maybe isn't as risk reflective, it may not drive this move of people away from danger. For government financing and aid and grants, and particularly for that principle, you know, largely around loss and damage, I think that the pledge at COP is is definitely in the right direction. The $700 million, I think that, that's, that's definitely moving in the right direction. Um, you know, there are other initiatives going on. I think the, the Global Shield led, you know, that, that's come out of the G7 has pledged 300 million euros for disaster risk, financing, insurance development. You know, this is certainly helpful in thinking about new for supporting new forms of insurance and supporting existing forms just to be broadened out and scaled. We also have the World Bank recently announced, I think just last week, that in some of their core financing, core projects, beneficiaries are able to access, I think it's 10% of undisbursed funds per project following a catastrophe event and really if you, you know if you break that down you know the world bank maybe invest in a two billion dollar uh, infrastructure program you know and 10 percent of the undisbursed funds could be used you know to support you know resilience measures after an event that's, that's actually the world bank 
acting as an insurer of sorts, right? And taking what's known as the first loss. So, you know, there's definitely increased capital moving into this space, both from governments, multilateral development banks. As always, I think, you know, it's going to be essential to think through how to test and scale some of these programs. And it's got to be a balance of demands and supply for this to work medium term. What Jack described earlier is, you know, is really the core of where I think the parametric microinsurance space has, has not quite met its potential yet. But, you know, Igli was showing one example where they can survive outside of a funded pilot program. I think there's many pilot programs that bring something new and shiny and, you know, they maybe be a little bit more supply-led than demand-led, but it, what Igloo describe is actually in this balance of supply and demand at a price that makes sense for the buyer, the beneficiary, and helps bring some private capital into play. It doesn't have to be pub, uh, public capital alone. We, just last week, we, we, we placed a parametric insurance program for coral reef in Fiji the benefits of which are there to help local communities following following a catastrophe event. But that premium was actually supported by BHP, the Australian natural resources company. You know, BHP absolutely saw how after an event it, and parametric insurance is if, one of the most efficient ways to get capital into communities. You know, and they're willing to, to sort of provide some financing for that. So it doesn't have to be public capital per se. But I do think the multilateral development banks are going to be a source of real growth in the risk financing space. I would say Iglo does it slightly differently. So we do it a more of a private approach. And because we've been doing microinsurance in whole Southeast Asia, we are distributing for us with multiple channels, e-commerce, banks and channels. And so we understand how microinsurance products should be built and how it should be developed. So in this particular case in Vietnam, the weather index insurance, we developed a quite sustainable way of, long, of offering microinsurance and index insurance to farmers. And itself is quite sustainable. But this approach is not sustainable enough to cover all the risks the farmer faces. Because in the advanced economy, if you look at the US and so on, the farmers need to pay five to 10% of their annual income as insurance premium. And they will get fully, more or less fully subsidized if an extreme event happens. And Igloo is not ready for that without subsidy. And also the private sector is not really ready for that. So our strategy is ready to fulfill vision of insurance for all. Try to cover some micro-insurance version to make sure all the farmers get some kind of insurance coverage. And some of them will get some claims. So when the market is ready, when the government is ready to provide more sponsorship and support, we can scale this up to provide higher coverage, not limited in debts, not limited rainfall, and to provide a safeguard for the farmers. So as of now, we are still trying to increase the market insurance penetration, educate the markets to make sure the, the farmers understand insurance. And when the market is ready, the public sector is ready, we will introduce a higher coverage and more comprehensive protection.
it almost sounds like North started aim for to, to for farmers to just spend five percent of the income to get fully fully covered for any kind of events, right? I mean, that's one place to aim for. But Jack, the the, the last question for you, really, um, like, like I said, are there any future plans to better serve the climate insurance market in Southeast Asia, maybe beyond Vietnam? I I mean, you're active in Indonesia, Philippines, I, I think quite a few markets in this region, right? Igu has a very strong uh, commercial op- uh, operation in uh, all these markets. Like not only Vietnam, we have Philippines, we have Thailand, we have Indonesia, we have Malaysia. So, and it was an insurance company, right? So for this wedding insurance products, we work extremely hard on the core insurance part, develop the product and calculate the risk, calculate the premium. But we're also very strong in this technology infrastructure. And everything. So once we figure out how the product should work in a part of Vietnam, then the similar system works for the whole Southeast Asia. And we also have our insurance partners. We work with minimum 10 to 20 insurance companies in any country. And we work with almost all regional insurance players. And we also got uh, support from the international reinsurers. And these reinsurers receive $100 million of premium worldwide from agriculture products. But also at the same time, they're also waiting for the government, the public sector, sectors to get ready for some sector product to be rolled out in the market. So I would say we will grow together with our partners, insurance partners, reinsurance partners, distribution partners, to roll it out, to get it ready. So, so far our next step is ready to cover the whole Vietnam and try to cover Indonesia and Philippines. And we'll see how it goes. Gotcha, those are three pretty big markets in Southeast Asia already, yeah? And cool. And I think Christopher, same question for you, but maybe more of a bird's eye view. What are some of the promising ways to kind of solve this underinsurance impasse in Southeast Asia when it comes to climate and extreme weather? I think at the at the micro level, it's definitely around, you know, looking for existing distribution mechanisms where, you know, services are already being provided, where, you know, there's already trust and, you know, a distribution network. You know, Jack mentioned some banks, whether that's through bank assurance, whether that's through social security, right? There's an existing mechanism there. What does an extra $300, $400 payment look like into the household on a parametric basis that pays within a week? Other than that, if if we zoom out, we do see more discussions and interest on these public-private partnerships. We look to support those as long as they do not, you know, just add additional risk onto sovereigns. I think that's both sort of unjust from a principal perspective and unsustainable. It, you know, the, the last thing we want to be doing is adding risk to, you know, the governments of Indonesia, Philippines, uh, Thailand, Vietnam. Uh, but we do see. Do you see state interest in areas which are socioeconomically important, right? Crop, livestock, aquaculture. There are forms of public-private partnerships in, in, in India, Thailand, the Philippines, Vietnam, Japan. And we do expect to see more of these programs come forward. You know, we're looking at this internally is the extent to which we can work with international reinsurers, insurers, and those domestic to think about how they see risk over the next five, 10 years. What does their risk adjusted return look like if they allocate capital to provide NACAD insurance uh, in Vietnam? What is the price they are charging Igloo? Can we think about that more systematically so that we're not just going to higher prices, we're not just going to less capacity? And I think if we can think about that and 
pair that with risk management services. I think we're in a position where we can actually make this capital more affordable because our view is that it's going to play a much more important role in our future landscape where we have more physical risk. Gotcha. So more strategic allocation of recent capital. We also talked about, you know, finding existing mechanisms to latch on to, to improve um, insurance coverage and partnerships and innovation and parametric um, parametric insurance and perhaps its limitations and what more needs to be done. I think that's a lot for our readers to kind of digest, a lot for me to digest. So I think that's a great place to leave it. And hopefully we will start seeing insurance rates um, in Asia climb in the coming years. So that was a great chat. Thanks again for coming on the podcast. Dr. Jack Xia from Igloo Insure and Dr. Christopher Au from WTW's Asia Pacific Climate Risk Center. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. This podcast was hosted by EcoBusiness, Asia's leading media company serving the region's sustainability community. Join the conversation by visiting eco-business.com. Follow us on social media and subscribe to our newsletters. Thanks for listening.